now your hosts for this evening, the Rolling Stones. Hello and welcome to The Letterboxd Show, a podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterboxd, the social network for people who love watching movies. Usually on the show, we are joined by a Letterboxd friend for a chat about their four favourite films. But this episode is a bit different, a bit special, a bit daring. Your hosts, Slim and Gemma, that's me, are pushing the boat way out to the top of the lake. Gemma, it's the year in review special, and we're calling in the big guns. Not only that, but we're innovating in podcasting and using the Letterboxd Hotline to speak with these guests. The what? Yeah, the Letterboxd Hotline. That's trademarked, by the way, so nobody try to get that copyright ahead of us. Uh, we spared no expense, as the year in review specials deserve all the new tech. Oh, yeah. The Letterboxd Year in Review is the ultimate film wrap-up of the year, the moment when the Letterboxd community's ratings and hearts and reviews all coalesce into one big, beautiful summary of a year of movies. And we want to know why these movies placed where they did. So we opened up the hotline to three experts from within the Letterboxd community who know their stuff about the three highest-rated films. Oh, yeah. And then once we're done with them, it's our turn, the Letterbox crew. What were our faves of the year? We will be joined on the hotline by senior editor Mitchell Beaupre and our London correspondent, Ella Kemp. And we will interrogate our own 2021 film delights. So just to recap, before we open up the hotline to our experts, the three highest rated films of 2021... According to the Letterbox community, in oh. order were <gasps> number one, Spider Man No Way Home. Dun, dun, dun. Number two, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0, Thrice Upon a Time. And number three, not many of you will have heard of this one because it hasn't been released in the US or the UK or indeed anywhere really outside of Indonesia yet. But Indonesian Letterboxd is strong, and so is this film. It is a small indie drama called Uni. I love that. I love it so much. All right, let's open the line. Open the line. I'm, I'm motioning to the our producer in the studio. Open the line. I'm doing like the phone sign, the universal phone sign. Open the, the line. The red light is blinking. The red light is blinking. I think we've got our first caller. Gemma, I need you to just take one second. I think we're getting our first call into the Letterbox hotline. Is this Letterboxed Spider-Man expert, screen crush editor, and writer of the book, Marvel's Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, the definitive comic art collection, Matt Singer? No, this is J. Jonah Jameson calling from the Daily Bugle, and Spider-Man is a menace! It's me, it's me. It was pretty disgusting how accurate that impression was. It's not the hardest, it's not the hardest one. You just growl and yell really loud and channel that J.K. Simmons voice, and it's all it takes. It was incredible, it was incredible. It's a beautiful thing. So, Matt. Matt Singer, welcome. Welcome to the Letterbox Show. Thank you. It's pretty big news. And it might, you know, it might be that, you know, a little tiny thing called recency bias. But nevertheless, Spider-Man No Way Home, the highest rated film of 2021. 
according to the Letterbox community. Were you prepared for this at all? I, I was. I was honestly pretty surprised when you told me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess in one way, I'm not. Uh, I'm. I, I, you know, I don't know exactly the formula that the highest-rated film is calculated by, but I guess purely by the number of people who are seeing the movie all around the world and who are loving it, I guess on, when you just sort of look at it from that perspective, that it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, this is a extraordinarily crowd-pleasing movie and an enormous amount of people are seeing it. And if uh, a, a, a certain amount of those people are going on Letterboxd and, uh, and logging it and saying that they loved it, I guess that's how it happens. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a weighted average. So it's, you know, it's, it's all the ones and all the fives. And you know right. all of those things together end up with a with a with a with a weighted rating that sits just above Hideaki Anno's Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a time. I mean, these are some pretty long uh, movie titles, but yeah, Evangelion <laughs> had it for for quite a number of months there, and then and then Spidey yeah. just slipped ahead. And I would suggest that over the next few weeks, and this is not to diminish its 2021 achievement. But over the next few weeks, it will slowly slip back down as as more and more people go. Yeah, I know. I know it's a three point five star movie that was a five star experience in the cinema. But maybe on my third rewatch, I might, you know, bring that rating down. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I don't know. But were you emotionally anticipating like this third Holland movie? What sort of mental state were you in going into your first watch? Um, I was. You know, I. Did my best uh, sort of to not uh, spoil myself as best as one can in this world and, you know, doing what I do for a living. So I was kind of, you know, I was kind of um, curious. I mean, I was pretty confident that, yes, uh, I mean, at this point, should we assume that we can talk about some of the things that happen in this movie now that it's the highest rated film in Letterboxd and everybody has seen it? Let's speak freely, I think. I'm going to, I guess if you don't want to know the gigantic thing that, Presumably everyone on the planet knows at this point, maybe scroll ahead a little bit in the, in the podcast. But I mean, I, I assumed that Tobey Maguire and, and, and Andrew Garfield were going to be in it somewhere, despite the fact that, you know, they were never promised, which is actually, to me, the thing that's the most interesting thing about this movie, especially in terms of this conversation, in terms of it's a highly rated film and it's, it's crowd pleasing. It's like, I'm trying to think of an example of another movie that was basically like, sold by not telling you the thing that's in it, the thing that everyone's going to want to see. You know what I mean? Like they never said that. And they, it's like a fascinating exercise in like psychology and audience psychology. And in general, I think it might be the one of the most under promoted movies of this size, like ever. And obviously, yeah, there was an enormous amount of hype and, you know, every website on the planet is writing up every little tidbit of news, but like, you compare this to the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man, you know, which I, I will confess to being, you know, I was like 21 years old, I think, when that came out. And that was the most exciting thing that had ever happened in my entire life up until that point. Yeah. Um, and I'm not <laughs> exaggerating. And I can like, and I know vividly, I remember vividly, like, seeing the first teaser for the movie. That teaser came out. Uh, over a year before the movie came out. The the teaser came out in the summer of 20, 2001. And in fact, it's kind of famous now because that was the teaser that had the Twin Towers in it. And so after 9-11, they had to, you know, the, 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 that teaser vanished and mm. they had to change the poster and they had to change mm-hmm. the movie and all this stuff. 
but the, the, the teaser comes out a full year before the movie. The first teaser for Spider-Man No Way Home came out in late August of this year. They had Andrew Garfield on a hundred different talk shows going, I'm not in it. I'm waiting for a phone call. It wasn't even that he was like, well, we'll wait and see what happens. I don't know. He literally would go yeah, on The Tonight Show well. and be like, I'm not in this movie. I, I don't know what they're talking about. And that, that, that footage you saw was a Photoshop. So it's just to me a fascinating sort of um, object, this movie. As much as we could talk about the movie, right. it's like when we talk about it being a highly rated film that people love, it's like, like it's just, it's, it's such a fascinating test case of all of this stuff. That was a very long-winded digression, but what I was expecting in this movie was <laughs> Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are going to show up in that last scene at the Statue of Liberty. They're going to help save the day, be like, Okay, bye. And that was it. You know, like maybe they would have two minutes of screen time. And that's not what the movie, again, the movie over delivered. They show up, they're in the mm -hmm. full last act. They have long dialogue scenes with all the Peter Parkers together. They're making jokes. Mm -hmm. They're being very Peter Parker-y. They're very uh, obs obsessed with the details of spiderweb ejaculation. Yes, I there's jokes about uh, <laughs> spider webs and all that good stuff. Yeah, it's it, it it gave you like it it gave you more than you were expecting. Unless I guess you were expecting the whole movie to be about them. For me, I was very pleasantly surprised. Even though I didn't love the movie, I, I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. But to me, all the stuff with them was way better than I even thought it would be. And so, to me, when we talk about right. why is this the highly, you know, highest-rated film of the year, I think that is what I would point to: is that it over-delivered, and it gave fans everything they really could have wanted from, you know, from from the the Peter Parker standpoint and the Spider-Man standpoint, and all these characters. I think I underestimated how many people loved Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man because I grew up on the Tobey Maguire and I was the same way. Like this movie is going to change everything for me. A comic book reader who now has movies like that was my Batman pretty much in theaters. So I think I kind of glossed over the Andrew Garfield ones. So when I was in theaters, like people were losing their minds in the theater. And I kind of like didn't get it. So I think that's a lot of those young people, you know, maybe Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man is their Spider-Man, you know? And then they, were they like the Marvel movies get them into, into those films and they realize Andrew Garfield's a pretty good actor. Um, so I, I think it's a, it is a fascinating use case. And I think also my theory too, is that they learned from Marvel civil, um, civil war movie, the, which movie Captain is that? Iron America, Man? Civil Captain America? War. Captain America Civil War. Um, because I thought it would have been so cool if they kept the Spider-Man reveal until you were in the theater. Because remember, they 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 showed it in the trailer that he was there. Yes, yes. That would have been such a cool reveal in theater to have the same thing they did with this movie um, about this one. Yeah, it's an, I mean, that's the kind of thing that Marvel doesn't really talk about a lot, but I would love to, I would love to hear those kind of discussions of like, yeah, how do they decide... We're going to make Spider-Man No Way Home and we're going to make it, we're going to do basically like live action Spider-Verse, but we're not going to tell anyone that's what we're doing. And we're going to keep, somehow keep it a secret when hundreds of people work on these movies from the people on the set, the visual effects, the marketing, the trail, all of this stuff. Like, and they did have a couple of little leaks here and there, but it is the amount of effort that must have gone into it. Mm -hmm. I, I do have a question for both of you as an outsider in this situation is in terms of the plot of No Way Home is 
college in America really this worth getting into? <laughs> worth destroying the multiverse over? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get into the college it I wanted, seemed... and thus I shall destroy the entire multiverse. Yeah. I was thinking if there was a weakness in the plot for me that would be it but then i read your review matt and i and and, and i gained an, a better appreciation for spider-man's specific role in the in the superhero universe which is to um break things and then to fix them right to your to your point like it is a it is kind of a very silly silly thing and 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 um you know i did not give this movie a five a star review on, you know, on, I wrote a review on Screen Crush where I work, but I'm on Letterboxd as well. You know, I, I, I to me, it was like a, you know, like a 3.5 star movie, very enjoyable, but not without its problems. And and the issues I had were kind of these things as well as like, there's a lot of kind of weird plot things, a lot of the stuff with the villains and how did they get in this multiverse? Why did certain people come and not others? Is it just a lot of like, there's a lot of moving parts to try to make this whole thing where they all come together um, makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately what it comes down to in terms of what you're talking about with, uh, the college aspect and, and, and Peter making several incredibly stupid decisions for a, a guy who is so smart, he can create, you know, devices that shoot webs and, uh, you know, a, a thing he also created. Um, yeah. Spider-Man's like core appeal or one of his core appeals, in my opinion, is that he is a kid and he makes mistakes. Uh, he screws up constantly. He, at least in his mind, is the reason his uncle is dead. He had the chance to stop the guy who killed his uncle and he didn't because he was an obnoxious teenager and he uh, was full of himself. And um, even after he learns that lesson, with great power comes great responsibility, he still makes mistakes, you know, like... He is uh, he is not Superman. You know, he doesn't always come to the rescue in the nick of time. Sometimes the people around him do get hurt and they do die. And so some of the things in the movie that are like that are just uh, to me, that's that's part of the Peter Parkerness. It's like, would you or I risk the multiverse to get into a college? Maybe not. Would Peter Parker do it because he's kind of a dummy at times about this sort of thing? Yeah, he would. <laughs> And he wouldn't think about it and he would screw up and then he would try to fix it, which is exactly what the movie is about. So Spider-Man No Way Home is not your top pick for the year. But what are some movies that you saw in 2021 that maybe are near the top of the list? One for sure was Dune was a movie that I absolutely loved. And, you know, like I'm not, while we've just been talking about Spider-Man for the last 20 minutes or whatever. Like, I am a huge Spider-Man nerd. I'll own that. I'm not a huge Dune nerd. I've never read Dune. It was gorgeous. I suddenly, like, understood yeah. why David Lynch and all these filmmakers, Yodorowsky, and, like, every person you love throughout history has tried to make Dune. Like, it, it, it translated that inscrutable Dune-ness that I'd never understood, and I, I totally, like, got it. And I was in love, and I was like, he... We have to get Dune Part 2. I'm ready for it. Give it to me right now. I can't believe they didn't make it already. Uh, so I'm delighted that they get to make another one. So that that's for sure is one of them. Uh, another one I absolutely adored this year was uh, Pig with Nicolas Cage. Mm. Um, oh, I was hoping someone was going to bring Pig, Pig to this party. Just an amazing, uh, <laughs> just an amazing little movie. The kind of thing that, you know, you, you expect because it's Nicolas Cage 
you know, you sort of expect, uh, you know, a, a very big and crazy performance from him at this point in his career. And when you hear the premise, it does sound like a wacky Nicolas Cage movie with guy loses his pig and he like kind of goes on a quest for revenge. It just sounds like a bad Nicolas Cage yeah. movie, but it is the most melancholy and beautiful and sensitive portrait of this guy and of the whole sort of a Portland f a food scene. Um, just very, very surprising on so many levels, that movie. And uh, I absolutely loved it. Mm. So that was another one. And then the third one that I have to mention um, is uh, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. Uh, uh, I know it's yes. not exactly the classiest, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe this is, you know, I probably, I could be wrong, but probably not going to win too many Oscars uh, in a couple of months. Maybe I'll be wrong. Look, that film gave us Jamie Dornan dancing on a beach and... Truly like if, one of the great the scenes. One good thing to come out of 2021. Truly one of the great scenes of cinema yes. of this past year. Yes, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I mean, it should be nominated for you know best original song. I'm sure it won't, but that song alone was just <laughs> ma so magnificent. But there's uh, just so many great moments, and I've seen Incredible. that movie like five times already. It's just something that like <laughs> it's it's like medicine for the soul. It's like when I need. When the days are just overwhelming, as they so often are these days, I just go away to Vista Del Mar with Barb and Star, and it, it cheers me up a little bit. So, uh, yeah, those are those would be the couple that uh, I would put right at the very top of my list from from 2021. Uh oh, Matt, your time is up. <laughs> Anytime. Yes, that's right, Slim. We're getting another call, which means it's time to move on to oh, the second highest rated film of the Letterboxd year in review and it is deep breath for this one evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a time uh directed by hideaki anno and it is uh, i mean for a long for the longest time it was almost the top film and then spidey just snuck in there but that's okay son it's still gun. right up there son <laughs> of a gun and it is the highest rated animated feature of the year oh. as well. Um, but is this, hello, is this writer, programmer, podcaster, yes. and quite recent member of the Letterboxd Adult Curatorial Committee, Juan <laughs> Bakin? Yes, it is. Hello. Well, hello. <laughs> Calling in from Miami, I believe. That I am. And it's actually a nice, <sighs> not horribly sunny day for once. <laughs> this is a truly international show. Juan, welcome to the Letterboxd show. We have wanted to have you on for quite some time. We will have you back. But today, today only, you are here for your expertise in all things Anno-san. Imagine that we, imagine just for a moment, I know it's going to be really hard, but just for a minute, imagine that Slim and I are Evangelion virgins. We know nothing. <laughs> What is it? How how do you explain the series to people? And and moreover, how do you you know, explain this film to people? Well, I was going to ask. It's like, oh God, which one do I? Okay, so the original series, Neon Genesis Evangelion, was just you know twenty six episodes. Sort of started off as what a lot of people just think is a basic mecha anime, you know, like kids getting into robots and fighting and stopping things mm -hmm. from happening to the world. And over the entire duration of the series, it's really more about like 
the psychological state of its protagonist and also just uh not just its protagonist but like its whole cast and sort of gets into a lot of these like deeper themes and then a lot of people hated the finale and <laughs> so surprise we got a movie instead of the finale or instead in air quotes uh instead of the finale which is end of evangelion which gets even more experimental and exciting mm. and it's such a dense text that i can't even start getting into right now because <laughs> then many years later uh <laughs> hideaki Anno returned to the series with uh, a four-series film called The Rebuilds. And so it's Evangelion 1.0, uh, 2.8, 3.0, 3.0, 3.0, or plus 1.0, which is just four. It's sort of a retelling of the series, mm. spread out into films with obviously a higher budget, more animation, like uh, more effects, rather. And slowly but surely through the films the first one's almost like a literal recreation and then it starts turning into a completely different route of story and narrative and exploration and so i always like to think of it as like three separate story arcs that are kind of repeating the same story like almost like a roguelike game where you just like end a run and mm -hmm. then you reboot and just keep going 3.0 plus 1.0, Thrice Upon a Time, is like such a fascinating culmination of not just three different runs of this series, but actually like sitting down and looking back throughout every single one of the films and also the making of the films and also the reception to the films. It's just, it's very mm. meta <laughs> without necessarily telling you how meta it is if you've never seen the rest of them. This fourth movie seems to be, you know, it's not like in a way that No Way Home, I mean, I'm not trying to, for well, Evangelion fans, I'm not com comparing, <laughs> everyone calm down. But in the way that No Way flag. Home, <laughs> everyone well, just like, unsubbed at the up. start of that <laughs> sentence right now. I'm They're out. like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way that No Way Home is kind of like the culmination of many versions of Spider-Man, many, many different iterations, many years of one character. I guess you could say that this final film is the culmination of many years of feelings with these characters, many different versions kind of, quote unquote, coming to an end. Is that a, is that a, a true statement for many of the yeah. fans watching this? <laughs> I think so. And I feel like, I mean... I would, I don't know, I don't have much experience with people who have only watched the four rebuilds, and I feel like everyone coming to this has, like, not the baggage of the series, but just, like, that mm -hmm. experience with understanding how emotions have changed over time. And also, like, it's, I mean, like, for me personally, it was kind of nice seeing these two films, like, this series and this film that were so like almost cynical and sad and like just stuck in its own head versus this film that kind of just starts approaching like maybe life is like all right and the connections we make around mm. us are good it's like not to be like the friends we made along the way are the real journey but like <laughs> <laughs> this is the live laugh love of the uh honestly yes <laughs> 100%. Oh my God. Because you wrote in your one of your letterbox reviews, you know, it took Arnold 
26 years to figure out how to let the story he's been telling come to a close for his characters to be happy and finally embrace existence by experiencing life and other people. And it took me nearly 30 years to do the same. Now, there's letterbox reviews, including yours, often say that Evangelion changed their life, showed them the meaning of life, gave them the will to live, showed them how to live. What is this religion and how do we join? (laughs) Um, It's called (laughs) mental illness and it usually happens when you don't medicate for a really long time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm already part of that religion. Uh, (laughs) Well, you're great. You're set. Um, No, like, (laughs) I mean, I really do look at it like almost... When I first saw the show when I was like 14 years old, I hated Shinji Ikari with all of my heart because I thought like he was all the things that like stupid people call him, which is like, oh, he's like a shitty character who just complains all the time. And like, why is he crying and this and that? And it's like, no, that's that's real. (laughs) You just don't realize it until should just like backing up for the for the virgins in the audience, like AKA (laughs) Shinji is like the main he's the main kid, right? He's the main kid of the group of kids who and his dad, there's a his father is an important figure. His mother's dead, his father's a distant asshole. He is generally lonely and like only finds really minor connections with people and one of like the recurring images uh, images of the series is this sort of like the idea of a hedgehog where like if you want to hold it you are going to get hit by the spikes so like you can't mm-hmm. ever actually comfort it so like that's sort of the idea of shinji <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah some of the letterbox lists that i see this pop on japanese films that will blow your mind and make you reevaluate the possibilities of the cinematic art form honestly I mean, true. If, if that's not even a pitch for you to maybe try the series it's working on me so i i was looking at that list of the you know the new series and i was kind of like you know maybe like as with the comic book reboots or relaunches you know, they're they're mainly in comics is a way to like get you to try it finally. Like come in, test the water, it's fine, you'll enjoy it. So I didn't even know that this was part of a reboot until really this year in review, so or relaunch, however you want to phrase it. So I feel yeah. like maybe now's the time for us, Gemma. Now is the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean I, I, it should have been the time four months ago when I was editing Campbell A. Campbell's piece for us <laughs> about this very thing. But I knew enough to commission that piece. I was like, what is this thing? Let's get our animation correspondent onto it. Okay, so a question, a quick question. Is is this the second highest rated film on Letterboxd and the highest rated animated feature? Because like Lord of the Rings Return of the King won all the Oscars, it's the last one? <laughs> or is it also <laughs> because this- They all just unsubbed again. All Evangelion <laughs> fans just unsubbed a second time during this conversation. Definitely. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm so sorry to all the listeners who are no longer listening to hear my apology. Or is it in and of itself also a, an incredible work of art? I mean, I think like, yeah, sure. Like, absolutely. Like, end of series bias is definitely going to play into it. Like, that's- Everyone's flocking to it for a reason. We all want to know what the hell (laughs) is going to happen with this, like, again, 26-year endeavor finally ending. But, like, I truly do think it is, like, a great work of art that just, uh, like, it's not even just that it, like, attacks its own history. Like, 
interrogates its own like its own existence um which like other favorite movies of mine this year but we'll get into that eventually uh (laughs) and (laughs) i just like not to compare it to no way home but like where no way home was just kind of like cherry picking all of these things and like throwing them into a movie i feel like this one looks at things that happened in the past and is directly trying to engage with not trying to fix them, but grow from them. Mm. And I think that's so important. Also, it's just really, really pretty to look at. (laughs) (laughs) So it's pretty to look at, but it's also in a letterbox list uh, that is called in capital letters, gay horror. Why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh my god. I don't know if I would call this one gay horror. Um, I feel like like End of Evangelion, I truly do consider like one of the greatest queer horror films of all time. Um but I don't this one's like like it's like half a slice of life movie and half like, well, now I'm getting over all of my like mental crisis issues. Like this is a horror. <laughs> it is still gay, but like that's <laughs> the letterboxed hotline is expensive so we need to hear maybe some some bullet points on two or three of your other phase for 2021 okay so maybe if you can think off the top of your head uh you know out of the sky what are maybe like two other movies that were near the top of your list for oh i can tell you immediately um <laughs> it would be barb and star good vista del mar which, oh my God, that's the second one oh this episode. I, I love Barb and Star. I don't care what anyone says. I've watched it, I think, five times. Sometimes, like, it, yeah, no, I love it with all my heart. And then my other favorite would be um, something that is very much in tune with uh, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0's concept of taking your text, reinterpreting it, and also quite literally critiquing it. Which is Matrix Resurrections. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, how many times have you seen it since it came out five minutes ago? Um, Like three. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention like rewatching multiple clips because God knows I uh-huh. can't resist. Yeah. <laughs> well, Juan, I'm sorry, but we're, we're getting another call on the hotline, Juan. But thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. And hopefully we do you proud as we make our way through the series this year. Thanks for having me. Good luck on your adventure. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good. Can I pick this call up on the... Is it my turn to pick a call up on the hotline? Gemma, it's your turn. Can I? Your turn to pick up the hotline. I can press the button? Oh, my God. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. I am pressing the letterboxed hotline button. Hello. Hi. Is this pop culture writer and watcher of uni several times over, Bindang Lestada, calling in direct from Jakarta? Yay! Hi there! Hi guys! Hi. <laughs> it is I! It is IZ Bintang Lestara. You are correct on that one. Oh my gosh. Caller ID works amazingly well on this machine. I don't know how we did it. Wow. <laughs> it's technology. It is so exciting to talk to you, not only because I have followed you for a while now on Letterboxd, but also because you might be one of the few Letterboxd members who can help us Put in context yeah. and celebrate the third highest rated film of 2021, according wow. to our community, which is, uh, and I hope I pronounce her name right, but please correct me if I'm wrong, Camila Andini's mm-hmm. film, Uni. Yes. 
First of all, I think, tell us a bit about Camilla and her husband and I guess uh, their whole filmmaking outfit because they seem incredibly mm-hmm. important to to present day Indonesian indie filmmaking, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so first of all, Camila Andini comes from a an industry of filmmaking because uh, from what I've known, her father is this renowned Indonesian director, Gary Nugroho, who directed also kind of a queer film like a few years ago. Uh, it's called Memories of My Body. Uh, and it gained quite an acclaim to and a few controversies, of course, as we all know, uh, with all the whole queer films and etc. But with Uni, with Camila Andini's Uni, uh, this film is very special. Very special because it's unpretentious and it's frank, but it's also, it captures a lot of heart and turmoil of Indonesian teenagers, especially Indonesian girls. Uh, so I think that's why this film resonates with a lot of us. The whole reception in Indonesia has been very overwhelming. Uh-huh. Very overwhelming. And uh, like I just felt like there are a lot of um, people who raved about the film because uh, the film is quite especially for Indonesian standard, uh, it's quite revealing in terms of mm. um, what it says about Indonesian society, about uh, our taboo culture, about um, especially about the way sex was portrayed in that film. Because, it's, because the film is, uh, the titular character is a high schooler. And it's, of course, it's, gonna, it's bound to have controversies but it was also about, you know, the way the fate of Indonesian girls are supposed to be painted uh, in our society. Because because uni hasn't been released far and wide yet. We don't want to sort of get mm-hmm. into too many specifics around plot and spoilers, but we should probably mm-hmm. just let listeners know that it, you know, it's it's it, it, it is very simplest level. It is about a an Indonesian high school young woman who is brilliant at many high school topics, so potentially has a university Mm -hmm. career ahead of her, but is also Mm -hmm. of marrying age. And so the, the, the people around her have begun, you know, presenting potential suitors and, you know, watching, watching it as someone who's been able to, choose their entire future and in fact choose mm-hmm. when I got married and who I got married to obviously it's it, it, it's a pretty hard watch in 2021 2022 mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to to know that this is what is still going on and it really feels like the very definition of the power of art to open up a world mm-hmm. and and to show show the rest of the world what Indonesian life and contemporary society is like. But inside Indonesia, clearly it is also a powerful piece of art because not many films have been made like this. Is that right? Yeah. And I think uh, this film, Uni especially, it conveys urgency because its Mm. candidness and its frankness, they're horrifyingly fitting with the situation in 
our country. And it basically just, I don't know, it ex- for me, it exposed like the wrong truth and the system that had been, that has been damaging uh, our people, our, especially women. Because in this, this film, it really forces us to see that survival is forced to be our sole armor in terms of how we have to define ourselves. It's truly sort of some kind of human human slavery, right? It's like you yeah, know, the, suggestion, exactly. the suggestion that a woman's body is literally her only asset in, in life in mm-hmm. terms of ensuring the survival of her family or ensuring that the lights stay on in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, like this all sounds really, really deeply um, serious, but I, I would also like to say that <laughs> for me and watching uni, it has the best movie kiss of 2021. It has the best <laughs> use of poetry of the year. And oh, yeah. yoga, oh, and yeah, yoga yeah, yeah. is, he is honestly dreamboat of the year. I mean, you know, yeah. and, and it's got... It's got one of the single best costuming decisions of the year when she shows up in that t-shirt that just says, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, absolutely genius. I like, like, so this is not to say don't put it on your watch list because it sounds deeply depressing. There's also so much joy and some mm-hmm. gentle humor and some, and some really incredibly um, anxiety making, you know, builds yeah. tension and, and dread. It's just, it's so finely held and my favorite thing that Camila does as a director is to just frame her actors and let them do their thing Mm -hmm. you know that one scene where all the girlfriends are just lying down and uni's got a head on one of her friends bellies and the camera doesn't move it just does not move and they do their thing oh it's just dreamy they're just like talking about oh is sex the sex hurt and yeah, oh, oh you, my god uh, how do you how yeah. do you masturbate how do you and everything yeah, it was uh, such a yeah yeah that was such a special i don't know it was such a special thing for me to see because we rarely see uh something about masturbation uh as a discussion in a film especially about in a film that talk, that has like a teenage girl as a titular character. I mean, it was very special. Yeah. I mean, for yeah, me, what I like about Uni also is that uh, Uni is kind of like the whistleblower of this whole discussion, of, of this whole um, social condition, mm. of this whole, what I said before, rotten truth. But then again, mm. it wasn't, it, Uni doesn't scream, at, scream that to our face. She just lets you show that rotten condition but also she also likes to tell us that you know you look you should look pretty and everything it's not it's political but it's also very it doesn't seem political at Mm. all it's just it's the very it's a very basic definition of show don't doubt so basically Mm. yeah because it's very nice to look at the film is very gorgeous 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 shots also, when she's just with the hairdresser and the hairdresser is recounting her story yes. and they're just sharing that moment with her taking photos of her. Oh my God, what a moment. There's a trivia. There's a little, fun little trivia. Uh, Uni was, uh, Uni was uh, before the feature length uh, film, Uni was a short and the hairdresser, the, the person who plays the hairdresser, she was Uni in that short version. Oh my God. 
Yeah, I think I still have the links. They look so uh, alike in that scene. It was it was yes. like some of the most perfect yeah. casting too between the two of them. It just felt so perfect. Wow. Yeah. Now, hopefully, you know, maybe 2022, we get a wider release so more people can experience this film. But, you know, the hotline isn't cheap. This hotline, the Letterbox mm-hmm. hotline, we made it and somehow it's not cheap. I don't understand it. But we do want to hear from maybe two or three of your other faves from 2021. Mm. Maybe a little rapid fire. Give us some suggestions for people to add to their watch list. I really, 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 really loved... Um, the Power of the Dog by Jane Campion. Oh. Yes. Like, of course, yes. Jane Campion. We finally watched a Jane Campion film again after 2009's Bright Star. It was amazing. Um, Janixa Bravo's Zola. Like, as a as a oh, child of yeah. internet, like, it just blows my mind. It blew my mind away. Like, it was so funny. And uh, very disturbing in a way, but it's very funny. And oh, the last just, one, I'm yeah. going to recommend um, another Indonesian film that mm. that also blew our minds away other than Uni. It, it's called Vengeance is Mine, All Others Pay Cash by Edwin. <laughs> that is, first of all, such an interesting title. But yeah. second of all, it's a, how do I describe it? It's like, um, it's like, it's as if the film has, a, has an ink. 80s martial arts filter about the oddball of a couple destined by a nightmare. That's how I would describe it. Jack's facts has just come through. Um, Jack does the facts for our podcast. He uh, mm-hmm. he would like you to know that um, Vengeance is Mine was so close to making the year in review. If just yeah. 50 more... <laughs> 50 more people had watched it and rated it. Wow. It would have been in there and made yeah. the action list. So... I also really like um, M Night Shyamalan's old. I had I had fun with M Night's old. I had fun <laughs> with that movie. You know, I, I've just come I, to accept you know how he writes his movies as M Night, and I'm just along for the ride at this point. And just you know, it's if it's a canon to have uh, quote unquote bad movies, I would accept it. You know, and <laughs> yes. he seems like he has a lot of fun in making it. So you know, why not? Absolutely, it's just one of the best premises I've ever heard of. Gemma, I think the line is lighting up again, so we have to say oh farewell. Dang. Thank you so much for sharing the love of Uni, and uh, I'm excited for this to get a wider release, hopefully this year. People love it also. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you, Slim. Letterboxed hotline caller ID, Gemma, has informed me that we have two new guests to speak with. We have one of which, London correspondent Ella Kemp is back. Welcome, Ella. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're very, very, very excited to have you. And finally, we also have senior editor and star cinephile, the game player, back on the show, Mitchell Beaupre. Welcome once again. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Do you say the next bit, Slim? (laughs) Oh, sorry. Yes. And everyone, welcome to part two of the show, our year in review spotlights. Exactly. Uh, So Ella and Mitchell are here now with us for this year in review roundtable with um, plenty of Jack's facts thrown in. Although actually I tend to think that the year in review is pretty much just one long definition of Jack's facts. But in any case, we four have been pouring over 
the letterboxed 2021 year in review categories. And we've we've limited ourselves, we've tried to anyway, by picking just two films each from two different categories each, although um, as is my tradition, I've already broken that rule. Uh, they might be the top films in those categories. They might not, but we love them, and many of you do too. Um, we're going to come to you first, Ella, but but just before we dive into your two, I wanted to ask, off the back of uh, our special guest, Bintang, how was uni for you? Because I know you love a coming-of-age film. Um, I love a coming-of-age film. I did love uni. I think um, it's, it's different to the my usual favourite coming-of-age films. I think it's quieter. I think it's softer. I think it's sadder um, than a lot of the ones that I usually gravitate towards. You know, your, I don't know, your book smart. I don't know why boyhood just came to mind as if I gravitate towards boyhood all the time. Mm. Um, but it's, it's very different to boyhood. Um, but no, it was, mm. it was, it was great. Uh, very surprising and sad and and the kind of thing that feels not inconsequential but feels kind of um not epic while you're watching but then the more you think about it I think it really kind of gets under your skin and you get angrier mm. and more outraged um it, it ages very well yeah that's interesting because Mitchell you you saw it um of all of us you saw it the earliest I think so you've had the longest to sit with uni where is it sitting for you now? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good, um, really good phrase for that. It ages really well, the film itself, because when I saw it at TIFF, which was in like September, and when I saw it, I kind of had like a similar feeling of like, yeah, I really liked this, but I think I gave it like a three and a half on Letterboxd. Like it was like good, but it just didn't like elevate it like above that for me. But the longer that time has sat with me, like the more like anytime it comes up, my brain immediately is like, oh, I love uni. Like I love that movie so much. And then I see my like rating for it and I'm like, oh, why did I rate it? Like I should have rated it higher than that. <laughs> so it definitely, it really does like sit with you really well and it grows on you. It's, it, yeah, it's it's a really lovely movie. Doesn't help that September feels like 12 months away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Oh my God. I just came in hard with a, with a five because I just knew that that's where it was going to be in six oh. months time. So I... <laughs> My Tr- word. Trust yeah. myself on that. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah, so, get ahead um, of the curve. Get ahead of your yeah. own curve. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, so, okay, speaking of coming of age, uh, there is a specific kind of coming of age film that is that is not in the teenage years, but is in the sort of late 20s going into your 30s. And Ella, I think that's where we're going to start with you, aren't we? Oh, yes, please. What is your category and what is your film? My category is romance. Ooh. Uh and the number one movie, the best movie in the world in this category is The Worst Person in the World. Thank you so much. I've been waiting months to do that. I'm so sorry. So what was, what was your emotional uh, status leaving the theater? I remember this was there was some at least some buzz on Letterbox about this movie when it had come out, and your review really knocked it out of the park. But what was what was it like seeing this movie, and and how has it felt since that uh, time? Around this movie, I was um, always will be a wreck. Really, let's you know, let's be honest about that. Um, I mean, so I I saw it at London Film Festival uh, last October, twenty twenty one. And uh, the film had played at Cannes a few months before, and so there was already... It was one of those ones where there was months of both hype in terms of, um, 
you know, colleagues and people I admire and respect within the film world, but friends, so many friends individually had messaged me being like, this is the one, this is for you, you are going to love it. And obviously, like, you know, those are even more special and also even more infuriating when you know you can't see it for months. Um, But it was one of those rare ones that my experience of it just completely... It was, it, it just, it overcame all of the hype and kind of, like, kind of sidestepped the hype. It didn't feel like it was responding to anything that, that anyone had said. It was just this, like, beautiful, special, individual thing. It was as if I was the only person in the world who had seen that film. Um, mm. And that's how it made me feel. And then I watched it again and I was like, yeah, like, only I know this film. Only mm. I feel understood. This film is written about me. <laughs> for me um, so that's where I am really normal response to a film really mature and good really oh I, I love it so much it's just so great and it's not even out yet it's not even out yet so that, that was actually what I was going to say because I saw this you know lucky enough to get a screener to watch it but some of these movies that we talked about this episode as a regular Letterboxd user, it can be difficult to see all the, the movies pop in the top of the list. And then you like, you're a pro or patron and you see where it's streaming and it's nowhere. Some of these movies probably aren't even going to be out for a while. Um, so it can be difficult to like just add these to your watch list and then hope and pray that like eventually it gets added for purchase. You get that email when it comes out, but it, it's definitely going to be worth a wait in my opinion. I agree. I love this movie too. I have been lately obsessed with uh, unit stills photography. It's 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 always been a love of mine. I'm so fascinated by how uh, stills photographers manage to sneak themselves onto a set and quietly do the work of the director and the cinematographer at the same time in a way that also gives us, us film lovers, that very first glimpse into a movie that we're going to see. And so, uh, and I'm writing about this for Letterboxd at the moment because I love, I love the work of Kirsty Griffin on The Power of the Dog. And um, I love the work of um, Eric, who who is David Lowry's regular stills photographer. But I love the poster for this film because it is a, it's a remarkable still with that title, The Worst Person in the World. But you're looking at this smiling, gleeful, running, kinetic <laughs> young woman. So you're like, well, how can she be the worst person in the world? I'm so excited for this film. And then you watch the film and no spoilers, but let's just say the stills photography is so inherent, like in in unbelievable ways that just really, really got to the heart of me. Yeah, I love this film. I can't wait for everyone for it to come out. And I feel like, um, Slim, are we in danger of um, overhyping the Slim Fluence? Given that you've seen it, you're safe here. <laughs> but should we just shut up at this point and move well, on? By the time this movie, it's going to be eight months from now. By the time this movie comes out, so maybe the slim fluencing will be fine, and people will be like, "Oh yeah, I heard good things about this. I'll just check mm. it out." But the this photography is insane in this movie. The scene in the town, oh, the scene in the you know, town, the poster is from. Oh Holy moly! Yeah. What a like scene! Like magic, actually magic, yeah. actually magic. And like, I don't want to say what happened yep. but what I do want to say is for the people who have seen that film and might wonder like if it in, in in terms of the actual filming and getting it done yeah they actually did that there are no effects it's it's exactly like what it is it's the way it looks there's no magic it looks like magic but they literally just shot it and everyone just did their job this is gorgeous and in terms of mm. um the category that it that it sits in mm. 
the romance category? You know, how does it how does it stack up in terms of I mean, it's been can we just say last time we had you on the pod, Ella, I don't know if we're allowed to go here, but we were talking about Please. your dating history. We were talking about Oh my we gosh, let's go here. Let's go. Here. I know where you're going. Go on. Go on. Well, we were the trials about- and tribulations of Ella oh, is gosh, the alternate title of that episode. That's why we're all here. It's why we're all here. There is no year in review episode. We're just checking in again. So when we last left off. In the, I can't believe in the I did ninth, this. <laughs> ninth chapter of Ella, according to the French title of Ella's life film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you were um, you were deep in the throes of uh, coronavirus era, um, not dating, and as we enter twenty twenty two, things have changed. Uh, yeah, things thing, things have changed. Um, uh, also, I'm I'm probably aware that I'm recording really loudly. Um, <laughs> And someone in the next room over <laughs> might be like, oh, she's talking about me. Um, <laughs> We're going to have a fun conversation in an hour. Um, yeah, I mean, thing, things have changed. And this is, okay, this is something I love. In, in all seriousness, guys, let's focus on the movies here. Um, no, in all seriousness, this is something I love about this film. Uh, you know, I, wa- I watched The Worst Person in the World on my own. Uh, the first time I saw it, and uh, and I really loved it, and it was one of those. Uh, uh, we, we we we've kind of talked about this when we talk about our movies before, in the sense that there are some films that I really love that I feel um, that I don't really care who else loves them because because I love them enough, and it doesn't really matter. And you know, if if people think I have silly taste, that's fine. Whereas this film, I feel really strongly about it, and that like anyone you know anyone who cares about me. Um, or wants me to like them in any way. <laughs> it's like they need they need to be on my level uh, for this film. Um, and um, and my boyfriend is so that's great. So you know, twenty twenty two, great film, great company. Everyone's on the same yeah. page. It's all great. Starting guys. with a win. But one thing I do want to say, why I think this so like this this deserves so much to be at the top uh, of the romance list because. It's not just about, I I love completely traditional love stories on film in the most kind of, you know, binary, backwards, classic, dated ways. I think it can work and be wonderful and romantic and exciting and all of that. However, what I love about this is that it's it's not just one that kind of goes through ups and downs and then endings and and breaks but then endings and then you know one journey kind of broken up in however you know however rightfully complex or beautiful that might be it's mm. it kind of breaks things down into pieces and i like that julie's love life is more kind of determined by by how she's like running and kind of figuring things out and like dropping stuff and then picking them up. And then there are people that come in and out of her life and, and come mm. back again and, and, and matter a lot, but it's not just, you know, the, the phrase love of like love of my life is used in the film, but it's not, it's, it's used so differently to a lot of other, um, not just films, but any kind of way that people talk about love, it's just done mm-hmm. really differently and it's very fresh and without trying to be deliberately, um, uh, subversive or like daring or bold or, or trying to do something different. It's just really um, listening to the way that kind of the way you might feel sometimes doesn't always um, fit 
with just like one mm. kind of thing. And I think it's wonderful. Okay, there you go. Mm. There, there's some movie talk for you to move away from me. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchell, any any quick thoughts from your end on The Worst Person in the World before we get to your spotlight? Yeah, what, what Ella kind of was just talking about there is the thing that I think is the most lasting for me about the movie and that impressed me the most about the movie is that it's not... It's very much not traditional in the way that it sees the relationships between these characters. It's extremely layered. And like, you know, she, Julie has a relationship with uh, one man in particular who's, you know, a little bit older. And one of the things that I love so much about the film is that when that relationship is first happening, Julie and us as the audience kind of see him in a particular way. And we get kind of, we make up our kind of opinions on him in that way. And then as she gets older, she reframes kind of how she views him. And we then have the same kind of response of reframing the way that we see him as well. And that's something that just happens naturally in real life. You know, as you get older, your perspective on the world changes, your perspective on relationships change. And we see kind of how that develops throughout her life. So it's really interesting as kind of a coming of age movie in a really real way that, I think is reflected, um, it reflects real life in a way that I don't think a lot of films often do, the way that we kind of just see people and how our views of the world change. It's also why it's so good on a rewatch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say for um, for anyone who's also a lover of art and lover of the process of making art and, and who is fascinated by the compromises that, you know, we artists have to make in our lives, it's it's got a lot to say about that too. It's really beautiful. Um, should we move from romance to drama? And should we move from Ella to Mitchell? Mitchell, let's hear about your your spotlight for the year in review. Yeah, so the first uh, movie that I wanted to kind of single out is from the highest rated drama uh, category in our year in review. It is the number three film on our drama list and the number five film on Letterboxd's overall list, which is the movie Come On, Come On from the writer-director Mike Mills of Beginners and 20th Century Women fame. Um, as, you know, rating that highly on both of those lists, it's clearly a film that's hit a major connection with the Letterboxd community, which isn't at all, I don't think, a surprise considering kind of if you know Mike Mills from his other movies, there's a delicacy to his work and a really personal touch to his work that, you know, he's drawing often from his own life, Beginners was kind of about, you know, in some way inspired by the relationship with his father. And then 20th Century Women was about the relationship with his mother. Come On, Come On is kind of inspired. It's not autobiographical in any way, really, but it's inspired by his relationship with his kid, which in the film is reflected with Joaquin Phoenix as the main character. And the film is really charting this kind of bond that he develops with his nephew um, because his sister has to go away for a little bit and Joaquin Phoenix is charged with kind of taking care of the nephew played by Woody Norman. And we really just see over the course of the film, the two of them and that bond grow. And it's really kind of on paper, it's a really simple film. It's, you know, not really much more than that. There's not like a lot of plot going on. And that really tends to be the case with Mike Mills. He doesn't complicate his work with a lot of moving parts. He really just narrows in this focus on kind of characters and their relationships. And that kind of really comes through as we see the complications of this relationship and that bond kind of growing. And the the thing that really sticks out the most for me about his work in general, and especially in Come On, Come On, is how he tackles emotion. And 
expressing emotion and kind of encouraging the audience to be in touch with their emotions and with it being such a personal story for him like it it that almost comes with the risk of it being so personal that the audience like maybe wouldn't be able to connect with it because it almost feels like this is like his movie right and like we just don't have any way in but it ends up going kind of the reverse way which is something that I love so much about his films in general is that making something so personal ends up building that bridge where it connects with, you know, audiences. And I think that's something that you see when you look through letterbox reviews of come on, come on, you kind of see the thing that Ella was just talking about with worst person in the world. So many people watching come on, come on are writing and saying, you know, this movie was made just for me. Like this Mm -hmm. movie is like my movie. And I felt, I mean, I felt the exact same way when I was watching it. And it's so remarkable because he made it for him, right? You know, like that's like, that's his, that's coming from him. But because it's so personal, he really builds that bridge for it to connect with everybody. So everybody, mm. I mean, obviously not everybody, everybody, but you know, a lot of people feel that same thing that it's just like, this movie was made for me. This really touches me, you know? Yeah, we have this beautiful interview that you've done with Mike Mills and I was watching this and I remembered, so like usually when I watch movies, maybe in the last 20 minutes or so, I'll start poking around on Letterboxd to see what my friends have said. Like, <laughs> yeah. am I lining up with what everyone thinks or am I different? <laughs> so, and then I was like, oh, that's right. We have this Mike Mills interview. Maybe it's time for me to, you know, reread that. And he has this amazing quote in there. Uh, Feelings are my genre. Oh my gosh. And I just, <laughs> it, it just as the movie was ending, I was like, oh my God, am I in love with Mike Mills right now? Yes. And the it just is yes. felt so yes. right. Yes. I was just so smitten with the his film, how it looked. Oh my God, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and just how so many scenes just kind of sat there, you know, and you're you're with the actors, you're with the characters, you're with the moment. Mm. I was just so in love with this movie when I finally saw it. Uh, so yeah, great interview. Um, I can't, and I think this is available digitally now officially for people to purchase. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's out there in the world. Yeah. That's how I watched it. And I mean, what a beautiful, I haven't even formulated any words about this on Letterboxd yet because I'm still letting it sit with me. But yeah, but some of my favorite reviews are the ones that, the ones that absolutely get that this, this film, which is about an uncle and a, and a nephew, is a film about mothering and motherhood. And and that comes through really clearly, I think, in your interview with Mike Mitchell. But it, it but it comes, you know, it really comes through clearly in in Joaquin, the, the Joaquin character's phone conversations with his sister, played by Gabby Hoffman, where he's like, Oh, this happened and this happened. And she's like, Yeah, that happens. It all happens. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I think makes Come On, Come On stand out so much is like it's this relationship between, you know, these two men, one, you know, an, an adult male and one a younger one. But the Gabby Hoffman character, Gabby Hoffman plays the mother. Like that's a character who in a lot of movies would she would disappear mm. at the beginning and we would like never really see her again or very rarely see her again. But she's always coming back into it, even if it's with the phone calls. She's always, you know, she has so much interiority, which I think is something that I love about Mike Mills in general. He never forgets about the women in his stories. He never forgets about like any of the characters. Like I think about Beginners, which is about, you know, Ewan McGregor and like his relationship with his father and his relationship with Melanie Laurent's character. But you have those flashbacks in Beginners with him as a young child and about his mother. And when I watch Beginners, I think so much about my relationship with my mother and like growing up with my mother and I see myself in those scenes. And it's like, 
in Beginners, he didn't have to have any of those scenes in there. You know, you didn't need that for the story that he was telling. Just like in Come On, Come On, you don't need to, like, it doesn't need to be told with Gabby Hoffman being an important part of the story, but that's an important thing for him. And that translates so well with the audience. And it just makes it stand out so much from other types of movies that, you know, are similar to this one. In the Letterboxd Year in Review, we we often will pick out themes that we've noticed in, in films that, that that tie them together. And in Come On, Come On, um, it, Come On, Come On sits in a list that's uh, black and white with a splash of colour. And it only just makes it into that list. And only for one absolutely devastating use of colour in the closing credits. And I just, uh, uh, yeah, I had to go and sort of figure out what that was all about. And it turns out that one of the beautiful young people that um, Joaquin's character and and his um, podcast, his public radio mates are talking to in New Orleans, like these are real kids. And that young nine-year-old beautiful child was gunned down after they filmed those interviews in New Orleans, which is just mm. devastating. But also what a beautiful brief at, spectacular artistic decision to make in the closing credits of all things. Yeah, it was a nice little tribute. That's amazing. Gemma, is it Gemma's turn? Is it my turn? Oh. Is it Gemma's turn to talk about your spotlight? It- Normally, I would kind of already make a prediction of what your spotlight would be, but I think we've already covered that movie this season. So why don't you tell us, what's what's your big uh, first spotlight yeah, of two well, this episode? I, I, I thought I would spare you uh, another spiel on The Power of the Dog. And also, I was going to push the boat out, but I ran out of time to watch Clifford the Big Red Dog. I was really going to throw a favor to Mitchell. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> if only we'll bring we'll bring me yeah. back. I'll come back for yeah. the Clifford episode. We'll yeah. just do a whole episode on Clifford. We'll just do a whole episode. <laughs> on Clifford retrospective think- <laughs> episode. <laughs> Look, let's just do a, a a live action animation hybrid episode, and we'll just <laughs> devote it to Clifford, and you can come back for that, Mitchell. But um, I'm so, down. I'm very down. Anytime. You know me. I set the rules of this podcast, and then I personally always break them. So I, uh, for my first movie spotlight, I've actually chosen two, and I'm really sorry about it, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Bear with me. I have chosen from the <laughs> documentary films and the documentary miniseries categories, and both are number one in their respective sections, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, and Get Back, the the, the Peter Jackson, billion hour long Beatles making of Let It Be. And um, I just thought these are, there, there's something beautiful that happens in every movie year. In fact, in every film festival, and we, we talk about this a lot, that Suddenly, there are there are mirrors. You know, there are there are films that that are in conversation with each other without realizing it. And for me, this is uh, these two titles are the perfect bookends of the year 2021. So we started with Sundance, January 2021, a long long time ago, several coronavirus mutations ago, in the thick of yet another winter outbreak. Right in the midst of that dark dark time. Questlove came along, Amir Thompson, and made life a bit more beautiful and celebratory, and also took the piss out of white people celebrating Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon in the Apollo Lunar Module Eagle on July the 20th, 1969. Because at that time in that same summer, there was an extraordinary concert series taking place in Harlem, and it was filmed, and then those film cans sat in someone's attic 
for another 50 years. Wow. And so we know about Woodstock. We even know about the Beatles recording, but we never knew uh, about this incredible concert series until um, he came along. And interestingly, uh, Questlove hadn't directed anything before and wasn't going to direct this. He was going to be one of the interviewees, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then he was just basically asked and asked and asked again to take the helm and made it also during the time of coronavirus. So people are wearing masks in the film. So it's, it's you know, it's, a, it's an official COVID-era movie and all the more spectacular for it because it... Um, it does what we haven't been able to do, which is drop us right in the middle of a spectacular live music event and reclaim history. And yeah, I said it before and I'll say it again. I think um, apart from all of the the actual musical performances, my favourite moment is when they're just going around interviewing all these people in Harlem about the moon landing and they're like, I don't care. Like, we're trying to solve crises on Earth <laughs> and these white people are going to the moon. Why? It makes no sense. Anyway, I love it. Love it so much. And then, Streaming streaming on Hulu right yeah. now. So if anyone hasn't seen that yet, in the States at least, it's uh, readily available. Yeah, and it's just utterly, utterly joyous and so well filmed. And one of the reasons it's so well filmed is because the camera's are aimed at the audience as much as they're aimed at the stage. And Mm. oftentimes you get the performances captured from multiple angles, but you don't often get those really beautiful long shots of, you know, not just the the wide shots of the crowd, but the close-ups of of people just absolutely loving and losing their shit. Mm -hmm. And then we finished the year uh, with Peter Jackson's, you know, 32 gazillion hour long look into the Beatles making their final album and um, which which happened in the same year, January of 69 and it's just so fascinating because it, it, it kind of does a few things in terms of unravelling history, history that you know like as a, as a woman in the music industry for me it's that the whole Yoko-ness of, of girlfriends, of of hangers-on, of groupies, has always been extremely problematic. And this movie kind of undoes that because Yoko's there and there's this amazing conversation. She's been vindicated. Yeah, she's been vindicated. I mean, sure, she and John were kind of high most of the time, but there's this amazing moment. There's this incredible conversation. It's possibly because Linda's sitting right next to him, but where Paul McCartney says, look, if, if John is asked to choose between Yoko and the Beatles... Of course he's going to choose Yoko, and as he should. And you're just like, there, there it is. Can we please erase the last 50 years of history where for some reason the female partner of a of a great artist has made it a problem? Like, she did not end the Beatles. It, I don't know what ended the Beatles. Maybe it was George's pink polo neck. But I'd like to say no. that I bought myself one after watching it. I bought a pink one, a yellow one. And uh, a red cord shirt with white buttons. Yes, that's all. For me. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> tell you. Um, I'm just gonna wrap this up, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. But with a few of my of my personal highlights of Get Back, um, when George asks for a glass of white wine, when George tells Paul he likes his beard, when George wears the pink polo neck, <laughs> when George says. When George says, jazz really moves me in a fantastic way. And um, and then when George says, and like, this is the crux of the whole thing, right? Whatever it is that will please you, I will do it. 
<gasps> oh my gosh. I'm going to cry. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I love him. One of my notes was Peter Sellers' oh, cameo. Yes. I just felt like one of the worst cameos. Oh. Like he walks in there. <laughs> that guy. And he just looks like nobody invited you. And he's just like a, you know, everyone's waiting for you to leave. <laughs> I just felt so bad for him when he walked into that recording that day. Don't feel bad for Peter <laughs> and, Sellers. You know, he's that like guy. an icon. I mean, he was a genius, but he was also a fucking asshole. Oh my God. <laughs> major problem anyway but what also how great is it that it's also about the art of filmmaking as well because the never has there been a documentary where the crew is more prominent and more fantastically dressed and and have more opinions than in get back one one of the other things too i noted um and there's been some you know justin uh liberty on a previous episode you know he's works very hard in restorations. I think he had some qualms about how they used, you know, AI to, quote, restore the, what is it, uh, 16 millimeter? I can't remember what they filmed on, but, you know, to me, it looked insane. Mm. It looked insanely good in 4K. Like, it just boggles my mind, the technology that's out there to, quote, clean up the film. Mm -hmm. You know, they did a lot more than clean up the film, and it just is insane. Like, you know, and I think... Peter did some of that work on his, you know, war documentary with the footage that he did previously, mm. but it's just mind blowing what when you have some money and computers, like what you can do. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy stuff. Is it my turn? There's also um. No, oh, go yeah. ahead, go okay. ahead, Gemma. Yeah, that's enough on that. No, 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 no. It's all good. Gemma makes this amazing impassioned speech yeah. on women, and then I'm coming in. <laughs> that's enough, Gemma. It's my <laughs> turn to talk. Thank okay. you. Now time to talk about Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of giving your soul over to the devil, uh, when we were putting the year in review together, I saw a movie, Argentinian movie, was the number one rated horror movie, History of the Occult, and I had never heard of this movie. So me being a horror lover, I had to go do some digging, you know, phone up some industry contacts (laughs) and say, how do I get my hands on this movie? So... I watched this movie, and uh, the synop- I'll read the synopsis really quick. It's uh, 60 Minutes to Midnight's last broadcast. It's like 60 minutes. The most famous journalism show on TV. Tonight's guest is Adrian Marcato, who might expose a conspiracy that links the government with an actual coven. It, and I'm, in my review, I kind of called it out as like, if Shudder had bought the rights to this movie, they would hype this movie up, and it would be like featured in the Shudder app for like a couple months. Yeah. It's very low-key. It combines... You know, live television uh, with psychotropic drugs, the occult, it's set in black and white, for the most part, political intrigue. And it's this investigative team uh, that finds something potentially nefarious, and they're not in, in set. It's like real time, pretty much. The 60-minute show kind of progresses while this team of journalists are watching in a secret location, hoping that they can kind of pull it off wow. on live television. As it does with live television, things go awry, and uh, it's revealed, uh, you know, they're trying to bring people to justice, but there's something bigger at play going on. It all unfolds seemingly in real time. So I was pretty blown away by this entire movie. Is this the only film in this episode that only you have seen, Slim? It might be. I've only. I think only Aaron might have this logged uh, from from the Letterbox crew. There's only four people that I follow that have logged this. I think Jack saw it too. Jack saw like I think Jack's seen like 95 percent of the movies that are in like crazy percentage. Yeah, yeah. 
I just read that one of the companies had bought the rights and unfortunately kind of like also called out when they bought the rights to digital distribution. They called it the remake rights. And oh. I did kind of feel like this, as I'm watching it, this, you know, it's a small Argentinian production, like some American company is going to come in and make an American version of this. And it's probably going to just usurp all the kind of like cool niche buzz about this. So when this is available, I hope people kind of check it out and get it in on the ground floor because it is a lot of fun if you're into the kind of funky, low-budget uh, horror stuff. It sounds absolutely amazing. And maybe a remake won't be so horrible if it's got like Vera Farmiga and and some other modern-day <laughs> horror yeah. geniuses in roles. What do you think? Like Maybe who- it'll get people to watch the original. Yeah. Maybe it'll get people to watch the original. I mean, I'm thinking right off the top of my head, the lead anchor, Tom Cruise. <laughs> Like we get Tom in there. I thought you were going to say another right Tom, away. and I was going to be like, "No, that's enough. Get off. <laughs> You're done." <laughs> Should we move to comedy? Let's do it. It's been a weird year for comedy. We're not getting a lot of stand-up specials at the moment, but I know that you love your. I know you love your comedy, Ella. Oh, I do. I love. I love to laugh. I love to laugh, and boy, <laughs> did I laugh in 2021. <laughs> In my defense, my current energy is like, this is exactly inside. Like, I don't know if any of you have seen inside. Everything about the way I am right now is Bo Burnham's fault. Like, it just is. Um, You know, like that special, it just, it changed my year. I've watched it four times. It came out last uh, June, I think, May or June or something. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, okay. I so Bo Burnham. Uh, he made a comedy special in 2016, I believe, called Make Happy, which uh, I have loved dearly for a very long time. And one of the things that I love so much about Make Happy is that it seems very final. It's very dramatic, and you very much get the sense at the end of it that Bo Burnham is never going to make a comedy special because it. It makes him deeply unhappy. Um, then he goes on to make Eighth Grade, spectacular. He's wonderful fiction filmmaker, director, and screenwriter, and all these things. And then, like in the middle of last year, you know, we're all minding our own business, and and the guy goes and posts a picture of a door on Instagram, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's neat." He's posting a picture of a door, but if you if you knew, uh, you knew that that was the door. At, at the end of Make Happy, and that's and that, and that's when every that I, I think that's when my 2021 kind of shifted, uh, and it stopped belonging to me, mm. and then you know belonged uh, to 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 Bo Burnham. <laughs> um, so with Inside, uh, Bo Burnham basically took. So he ends Make Happy by kind of by leaving the the stage and seemingly walking straight from the stage where he's performing to you know, to a, a, an audience in a kind of standard venue. He leaves the stage and he and he goes into his own kind of, I don't know, like, it's not a workshop, it's like his own little side house away from his house where, you know, he writes and, I don't know, it's funny. Um, so that's where he finished Make Happy and Inside <laughs> takes place entirely in this little room, this little house where, uh, uh, at least in the, in the world of Inside, where he locked himself in on his own during the pandemic. Mm. And so it's this time capsule of lockdown, of the pandemic, um, 
of of you know of of everything we've kind of been dealing with over the last two years. And I and I think when when it first came out, uh, well, when it was first announced before it came out, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, oh, you know, I will I will watch and begrudgingly love everything this man does, but is it? I don't need another. Because, you know, but summer 2021, we'd been dealing with this for like over a year already. And there had been a lot of art made about the pandemic already. And I thought, I just, you know, uh, Bo Burnham's very neurotic, which is one of the things I love most about him. But also, you know, we've all become more neurotic in the last year and a half. So I was like, I don't know if I need more of that. Yeah. Um, but I I just, I, I think it's, I think it's incredible. I think, I think it's an amazing piece of art about, um, you know, about being trapped with yourself in a global pandemic, again, and also it doesn't address the pandemic, which I rate in terms of things very much clearly about that. Um, you know, it's very good about like mm-hmm. being trapped with yourself in the current context of the world, but also being trapped with yourself when uh, you create and have to, and you can only rely on yourself to make work, um, be happy, make friends, keep and maintain relationships uh, entertain yourself, distract yourself, like heal yourself and do all of these things. Um, and it, 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 it just bottles all of it. And I think it's just, I think it's amazing. Um, and at the same time, the music's really good. Uh, you know, he's always, Bo Burnham's always done musical mm. comedy. Uh, and I think he, he has quite a distinctive voice. I, I know some people don't like it. Um, I personally love it. So <laughs> this is not for those people. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> but ev- everything that he's kind of been, uh, nurturing and working on and kind of, um, I suppose, sh- sharpening over the last few years is just like at its most sophisticated and slick and and ambitious and just excellent in this, um, which is why when it came out on Netflix, uh, so none of the songs of Make Happy are on Spotify. And this is a great sadness of mine. Um, and you know, it's a problem. Mm. Um, and I, and I thought this might happen with inside and I was quite distressed about it. But then a few months later, um, uh, all of the songs for inside were released on Spotify and then like they turn it into vinyl and then it played in cinemas for a bit and it's become a whole thing. And I just think, you know, honestly, like honestly, fair play. It's like, you really should know when you can <laughs> take it out of that room. And it's like recognizing how good your art is and kind of expanding it. And I think particularly after Make Happy and everything, I do think there are some artists like that, for me at least, uh, as much musicians as filmmakers, everything, where I I love everything they do and I want to support them so much beyond just like watching the things. Um, and it seems like it's, I, I don't know what the logic is, but it's not worth, worth the effort or the hassle or, or or they don't they don't want to expand beyond that one piece of work. Um and I love that someone clearly just managed to convince him being like, this is amazing. You have to, you know, do more with it. Let it live on. Let it come out of the bubble. Yeah. Okay. Diving straight into the uh, controversy. Um, on Letterboxd, there were a number of viewers of Bo Burnham Inside who felt let down or uh, in other ways... Um, I guess put out and upset by what looked like uh, a privileged white man with uh, with all the available resources to be able to buy in funky new toys and tools to 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 make his numbers more and more interesting and exciting visually, having mental health problems in a pandemic where people who are in far worse 
personal circumstances, you know, don't have those privileges. And I found those reviews really challenging. And I guess I speak from a place of privilege in saying that too. And that they were essentially saying it's sort of not okay to make art Mm -hmm. if you're kind of doing okay materially. Um, yeah, it, it was, it, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of muddling that conundrum, even, yeah. even, you know, this far down the track. Love your thoughts. I think, I don't know. I do. I completely understand it. And I, th- and I think that applies so much in terms of all the kind of music we listen to, like, you know, how many, how many sad white men with guitars have like made millions over decades. And no, but I say this as one of the people too who many, will- Too many, Yeah, it's like, I will give them all my money every time. I think yeah. for, for me, it's, I kind of see it in the way that I see, I'm also coming at this from an extreme place of privilege as well, where like, you know, very little in the grand scheme of things has gone wrong for me. You know, I've watched Inside four times in the pandemic, like, I'm fine. Um, but- <laughs> I'm coming at this in terms of like why Bo Burnham maybe made this uh, in two different ways, I think. Um, The first way would be, I think, in the same way that why everyone still writes and makes art about heartbreak over and over and over and over again. Because however, however however small or big it is for you, nobody else knows how it feels. Like if, if they might be able to uh somewhat connect you know like 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 Mitchell you were saying about um Mike Mills and come on come on it's obviously about his kid and if you can find something to connect with in that that's wonderful but it is his story and I think uh privileged white men making art about their own neuroses they can't make art about anything else and they don't know anything else and I think uh you know mm. as someone who 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 writes uh to to do that to an extent it's like if you don't put it into art or like be that in film or music or whatever where are you going to put it like there's nowhere to put it mm-hmm. and it's a lot I think and I think it is you know that that's one part of it in terms of suffering and neuroses oh I'm going really big here this is just a very like non-backed up theory <laughs> whatsoever um <laughs> you know I just think do we need to get a psychiatrist oh, on the hotline? So sorry. But I just th- I just think it's relative in the sense that, you know, it's 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 catharsis and then it's a bonus if anyone else connects with it. And I think with Bo Burnham, a lot of people do connect with it. And but I do also think there's another side to it, which I really notice with Inside. He's been talking about um, you know, his neuroses for for decades and addresses this in um in a lot of interviews he did after eighth grade, saying that, you know, he stopped doing stand-up because he would get panic attacks on stage. And I think uh, inside you can really, f- it feels more sinister to me. Like I, I've, I'm more worried for him in this. Again, it's all relative. I'm not that worried for Bo Burnham, but I'm more worried for him in this than <laughs> other things I've seen him do. Um, because I think it's 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 such a, it's a coping mechanism completely. And then, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather he makes art um, that's irritating and about like, things that fundamentally he's fine I'd rather he does this and feels better rather than doing something you know much more dangerous and upsetting and bad and whatever else um I want to single out um uh Demi's review of Inside um because I think he just absolutely nailed it in far more eloquent ways than I 
than I could. Um, and even even just his first sentence, I'd recommend you read the whole review that, that Demi wrote um, of this on May 30th. But at the start, he says, there's something poisonous about being forcibly stuck inside as a person who views creative work as their life's goal. When there's nothing to do but create, your mind starts to eat itself and make you feel bad for not being able to create even more. So it's this like horrible cycle and it's poisonous and then it eats you up. And then, you know, with Bo Burnham as well, he's, he's so far into his career and it's so reliant on an audience that it's like what else is he going to do like I'd love to see him do something else but I don't know you know we're quite far down the line at this point Mm. so to circle back I don't know (laughs) (laughs) Mitchell uh, any thoughts before we get to your spotlight I mean it's yeah it's a it's a heavy topic um and I think that you know the the kind of takes that Gemma's talking about like I think they're fair you know if you know if hearing um, you know, rich, cis, straight white guy, you know, complaining about how hard things are for him just isn't something that you're interested in. Like, mm. solid. That's fair. You know, I mm. I don't think that like that's, you know, a voice that we need to hear necessarily. But for some people, maybe it is what they need to hear. Like Ella was saying, you know, you can like mental health struggles. Anybody can connect with, you know, certain things. So if you're not interested in listening to that, you don't have to. Mm. Right. But I mean, I personally, I I have a kind of weird journey with Bo Burnham and with this special in particular. I was not really a fan of his before. Um, I didn't really like his comedy. Like I was impressed with kind of technically and directorially the way that he would like do his specials and stuff. But like his style of comedy um, or like the content of his comedy was just like a little bit juvenile for me before. So when Inside came out and everybody was hyping it so much, I, I didn't watch it for a long time because I just didn't think that it was going to be like for me. Um, and I didn't mind that other people liked it, you know, um, but I just didn't think that it was my thing. And my partner, Sam, who also works for Letterboxd was, they watched it and they like were obsessed with the songs. They got really into the songs. And when it came out on Spotify, we're like playing the songs. And so just kind of by osmosis of being around them, hearing the songs, the songs got stuck in my head. I thought the songs were really funny and catchy. And so uh, for literally months, like six months, I was constantly listening to the songs on Spotify without ever having watched the special, <laughs> like just listening to the songs over wow. and over again to the point where my, my end of year Spotify wrapped, my number one artist oh was Bo Burnham. My top songs were it's all from inside. Mine. This is amazing. <laughs> but then, so then I finally, I watched, I finally watched the special like a month ago. And I mean, it's really impressive. And I think that it really has what Ella's talking about, you know, with like these struggles that he's had. I mean, there's certainly things that I really relate to in them. Um, and I think, I mean, I think the special is really impressive, just even from a technical level, the way that he composes everything as if like they're their own usual, like um, they're their own individual like vignettes. Like he makes like particular music videos out of every song. I, I think it's really impressive. And as somebody who was not a Bo Burnham fan, I, I was really, really yes. impressed with the whole thing. And I still, every single day, listen to the songs. <laughs> and honestly, listening to the songs has been a really cathartic kind of coping mechanism for me too. Like it's it's a thing that I listen to just because it like taps into something in me that like soothes me even when it's talking about the more difficult stuff. I just want to say that um, one of my great joys of 2021 has been getting white woman's Instagram stuck as an earworm pretty much <laughs> daily. It's so like, good. maybe I'm childish. It's 
people claim it's an anti-feminist song because it's sort of belittling a practice, you know, that a certain cancel me sex, section of womanhood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cancel me. I love it. I get the giggles every time. I sing it while I'm making my coffee in the morning. It just brings me so much joy. <laughs> Speaking of um, comedy, I was going to say let's just let's just keep rolling with comedy and move to Mitchell's second choice, which is uh, it's also it's from the comedy features category, right? Yes, yeah. My so my second choice is from the um, the list of our top rated uh, comedy films of the year, which does include Worst Person in the World, fittingly. Um, but my pick is uh, Shiva Baby, which yes. is the number nine film on the list, Whoa. which is uh, Emma Seligman's film. And I, so Shiva Baby, we're talking about kind of worst person in the world. The fact that, you know, a lot of people aren't even able to see it yet. Um, a lot of people haven't been able to see it yet. It comes out in like theaters, I think finally, like February 4th, um, for people to hopefully be able to start watching it. Shiva Baby, I first saw back in the fall of 2020. Um, it played at New Fest, the New York Queer Film Festival. And I saw it there and um, I mean, it immediately blew me away. It's, you know, it's so funny. Um, so, so funny, like this like cringe comedy. The film is kind of about, you know, this young woman played by Rachel Sennett who has to go to a shiva. And when she is there, you know, she's kind of swarmed by all of the people in kind of her culture, her community, her parents who, you know, are asking her questions about, you know, what's she doing with her life? What are her relationships like? You know, when's she gonna get a husband and settle down? What's she doing for a career? All of, you know, the people that are just connected with it. But at the same time, also at the Shiva is her ex-girlfriend who she clearly has some sort of tension with, you know, things didn't go well. Also at the Shiva is her current sugar daddy who she just, you know, left having a little session with and so she's dealing with all of these things all at once it's all kind of colliding and you know Emma Seligman creates this this hilarious cringe comedy out of it but it's also so unnerving the entire movie it's when Jack and I were kind of going through the list and like you know deciding looking at kind of genres and like you know does this does this actually should this actually be considered a comedy you know should this movie be considered a drama should you know so and so movie be considered sci-fi whatever 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 and looking at Shiva Baby it's like okay well it's on the comedy list for sure it's obviously a comedy but it also could you know just as easily apply to the horror list because I think it's it's so anxiety inducing to a degree that I don't know if any film has really captured that in a while, at least one of, you know, I mean, this is a little bit controversial. Maybe I'm not mentioning a letterbox take, but a Twitter take <laughs> that was very popular um, was referring to Shiva baby as uncut gems for hot Jewish sluts. I was and so happy to say that. <laughs> I know. I think I know about Ella, it all the time. Ella interviewed Emma Seligman. <laughs> yeah, Ella mentioned that tweet directly to Emma in, in her interview with Emma um, earlier this year for Letterboxd, or earlier last year, I guess, for Letterboxd. And I think that that tweet, Uncut Gems for Hot Jewish Sluts, is literally in, you know, however many words that is, this distillation of exactly what Shiva Baby is. It is hilarious. It's sexy. It's funny. It is also so anxiety inducing. You want to just scream and it's only like 80 minutes long and it's on HBO Max now. So, you know, if you got HBO Max, like pretty much anybody can watch it. And I think I, you know, no movie. I mean, it's, it's just lasted this whole time. You know, it started premiering in festivals in 2020 and it still has such a high rating on Letterboxd. Everybody loves it. It's very, mm -hmm. 
culturally it's very Jewish, but it also is, you know, very universal. Like I have, you know, Jewish friends who watch the movie and are like, that is literally what it's like. Like, this is what, you know, it is like one of my best friends, this guy, Ross Bratton, who is on Letterboxd, shout out Ross. It's his favorite movie of the year. He has not stopped talking about it all year, right? But it's also, you know, as somebody who is not Jewish, I watch it and I see like so many elements of it that I relate to. You, We can all kind of relate to being in like a group setting, you know, with oh people that, where you just feel like so like you can't be yourself, you can't be honest and everybody's just kind of nagging you. And the way that that tension rises is just so brilliant throughout the movie. I mean, we we have our resident Jewish girl right here. So, you know, Ella... Oh, I just okay. I mean, the thing the thing that I love is I I don't consider myself a particularly religious Jew. Wow, I said that the exact same way that Lady Gaga says that she's not a particularly ethical person. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's true. I <laughs> let me try that again. I, I I don't consider myself a particularly religious Jew, um, but uh, oh, how am I going to finish this? I don't know. Anyway. But I see myself in Shiver Baby and I think that's what makes it so like that's what makes it such a good Jewish film because it's not kind of showing you like, oh, like this is how we pray and this is like what how we eat, whatever. But it is it the kind of um it is the mannerisms and people's personalities, it is the overbearing relatives and like the eyebrows that kind of just like, you know, roll back into your skull when you mention the word feminism and that like, you know, you're not a doctor. <laughs> and yeah, like she was your ex-girlfriend. No, no, she wasn't your best friend. That's what she was. And then like when your mom's being a bit too loud, and it's like, I know all of these things happen in every, like in every culture. It's it's not exclusive at all. Um but it's uh, it's it, it's it's quite acute uh, for 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 Jews that I know and the Jew that I am, um, and I just I, I just love. It. I think this is something that I was um, when I interviewed Emma, we were talking about that. It's just like it's not trying to um, it's it it you know it's it's not trying to kind of put Jews on the map and 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 do anything for kind of representation. It's just like it is just innate. It's. It's so, uh, it's overbearing. It's annoying that obviously, you know, all of that does translate on screen. And then you're just like, oh yeah, I guess that's what it's like to be a Jew. And that's what it's like to be a a, a young woman with frizzy hair who doesn't know what she's doing with her life. Um, and yeah. I just, oh my God, I saw this movie because Ella screamed at me via DMs <laughs> that I needed to see this movie. It's quite a recurring theme, that, I'm sorry. And, um, and she's been, yeah, she's got a, basically, I mean, it was this one and The Worst Person in the World, are two films that Ella screamed in capital letters at me that I had to watch. You're and, welcome. And, and she's two for two, batting, <laughs> batting two for two at the moment. So I'm like, I'm all over it. Yeah, thank you very much. I love uh, so much about this film, but specifically the scene around the table that's got the the bagels and the everything at the at the shiv when the uh, the, the the sugar daddy's partner. Anyway, that if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you just need to watch the choreography of that scene. It's extraordinary. But I was going to say, can we all just agree that Rachel seen it? Yes. That's all I have to say. Yes. She so very true. much so. Yes. Yeah. She. I have been just IMDBing her because I want to know, like, I know she's done some TV, but I want to know what are we going to see Rachel Sennett in next? Ooh. And not just because she's brilliant in Shiver Baby, but because she has been brilliant this entire pandemic outside of Shiver Baby, all across social media. This woman 
as an like never has there been a better match I think between lead role and lead actress in terms of what she herself has brought to the world of promoting this film. She did this on documentjournal.com. She did this amazing everything you need to know about dating during the quar. Uh, right near the beginning of like back in April 2020. And she's like talking about how right after the quarantine began, I saw a lot of bragging from the 1%, the 1% being girls with boyfriends, rubbing it in our faces that during the lockdown, they'll be able to have sex, talk to someone, be held, (laughs) kiss each other on the mouth, etc. It seems like having a boyfriend is a best case scenario, but speaking as someone who's been inside with a guy for over an hour before, it's going to turn into a nightmare (laughs) fast. And on she goes. Like this woman is genius. And if you're casting (laughs) films, you could do no better than to have her on on your publicity team. I mean, the Shiver Baby universe is expanding. What? Emma and and Rachel are working mm. together on a spin-off uh, series for uh, for HBO, I'm pretty sure, called Sugar or something. This is exciting. Yeah. And they are also working together on another um, uh, coming of age film, not related to Shiver Baby. Um, I don't want to get the title wrong. It's it's either, it's called it's Bottoms or Bottoming or it's something along those lines. A queer teen <laughs> um, fight club. That's what it's built as. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. What a pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my God. Follows two unpopular queer girls who start a fight club to have sex before their high school graduation. Is that is the official logline. Okay, I'm done now. And I think they're they're co-writing that one together too, which is going to be even better. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And we yeah. still have two picks to go before we wrap up this absolute bumper year in review. Sorry, sorry to Slim, you're editing this. I hope that... It's going out unedited. It's just going out (laughs) to the world. (laughs) Just before we get to, I'm really looking forward to diving into your your second pick, Slim. So I'm just going to very quickly touch on my number two. Okay. Uh, I could have chosen, everybody's talking about Jamie because nobody has talked about, everybody's talking about Jamie enough, frankly. Um, For me, it's just Richard E. Grant uh, at that beautiful song that they added to the movie that that shows the history of um, of AIDS activism in the UK. Uh, I'd love to talk about The Green Knight, but let's just say Magic Sex Belt, Tick 2021. That was beautiful. Thank you, David Lowry. Cleaners is, uh, is an extraordinary, amazing little film. And just don't know why Netflix released The Lost Daughter on the 31st of December, because she has not made it into any or many or if any of our year in review lists, but let's just put that at the top of our 2022 watch lists. Um, but, you know, looking at all these films and I guess talking about a lot of films that are not yet available to see, I thought I'm going to dive into the most popular section and find oh. something in there that I remember having loved in 2021. And you know what? I surprised myself, but it is Cruella. It is Whoa. Cruella. I loved it. I can't I, believe that. <laughs> Same. Oh, good. Great. I thought you were going to say you can't believe. I know. (laughs) I mean, it was just so good. And I just, uh, I was trying to sort of formulate my thoughts about why I loved it. But instead, I'm going to read a review from Churches, a previous Letterboxd show uh, guest, three guests. 
Um, and they write, she writes, I actually really enjoyed this and don't understand why I've seen so many people panning it. The costuming is obviously amazing. Always here for a bit of a Vivian McLaren McQueen homage. And I liked the reinterpretation of the Cruella character. Fun, killer soundtrack, solid performances, cute small dog in a rat costume, a better origin story than basically any of the comic book ones we've been subjected to these past years. That is my review in a nutshell. I'm just going to plagiarise that and then and then the moderating team can report me and take me off letterboxd. I don't know. I don't care. But I think that um, Craig Gillespie, Emma Stone, Emma Thompson, Joel Fry, Mark Strong, like the, the whole gang, John McRae, speaking of everybody's talking about Jamie, uh, they just did a, a gangbusters job. I bloody loved it. That's all I have to say. No, but the thing is, I like, I'm kind of worried about saying that it's so much fun now because I... I I completely agree with you, Gemma. I thought this at the time and just, you know, didn't overthink it. Thought it looked amazing, sounded amazing. I mean, you know, I I, I think it has a lot in common with I, Tonya. Yeah. You know, Craig Gillespie's previous film and a lot of the kind of pacing and the energy of that I felt was quite similar. Um, but then after Cruella came out, so many of my friends uh, were kind of, they, I, I, I think they were hurt by me personally, having hyped it up so much. They were like... <laughs> why have you lied? Like, why have you done this? And they were getting so angry. And I was like, oh, I mean, I stand by what I thought. Yeah. So I've kind of just kind of retreated on the film. But um, but no, I agree yeah. with you, Gemma. I uh, I think it's fantastic. I think Emma Stone nails um, the accent. And like, I know we talk about this every time that, you know, anyone does an accent that isn't theirs, but it is so important for Cruella. Like her, her voice is just as important as like her hair right. and everything she wears and everything. And yeah. it's, um, it is... Honestly, spectacular, I'd say. A very fun and film. And Paul Waterhouser is gorgeous in it. And Joel Fry is gorgeous in it. And like, she's a shit friend and that's kind of what Absolutely she has fantastic. to learn. And, you know, people say it's sort of it's sort yeah. of jo- joker for girls. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. Because she learns how to be God. a friend and a human and also no. a psychopath. It's all, you know, it's all part and parcel. But Oh, and also Emma Thompson. Yes. Oh, my God. Also Emma Thompson. Just An Emma amazing Thompson. standoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Incredible. I like Emma Thompson as a baddie. So that's, yeah, that's me. Um, but mm. speaking of popular, Uh-oh. finishing out the year in, in several categories, uh, including most popular, but I'm really glad we're going sci-fi for your last pick, Slim. I'm mm-hmm. glad we get to go horror and sci-fi. Like we've really covered a lot of the bases here. Why don't you dive in to. and tell us? All we have is now, Gemma. All we have is right now. And all we have is Matrix Resurrections. <gasps> This year, you know, I had gone through the OG trilogy for another podcast that I do, and I felt kind of bummed by the time I got to the third one. Like, you know, you get announced, I think they announced Matrix 4, you know, like maybe a couple months back, and they're like, oh, by the way, we made a new Matrix 4 movie, and it's coming out soon on HBO Max. And you're like, what? And then, so you watch the trilogy, and I'm like, uh, you know, maybe the trilogy didn't end really that well. I'm not really that hyped for the movie anymore. But then I sat down... And I had a brand new Matrix movie that I was watching at my house. You know, like it just felt like a really cool, yeah. strange moment. Like <laughs> this is weird. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm watching some brand new Matrix movie. I grew up on the Matrix movie, the OG one. And now I get to like do that again at home. This is so cool. Right. And I love that. First of all, I loved it. Okay, four and a half stars. I love that Lana didn't conform to people's expectations of what a sequel should be or what a Matrix sequel should be. It didn't have the same action that people were expecting. Like, it doesn't have good action scenes. 
It, everything looked different. Like it was obviously shot with like red cameras. You know, I, I love that mm. Lana leaned in on all that stuff. And you know, the subversive writing. And I loved the scenes between Neo and Trinity towards the end. Like I was well, speaking sobbing, of romance, is this sobbing was this in our romance category? So romantic. It oh, should be number so one. Romantic. It should be number one. It should be a tie. Number yeah. one, Matrix Resurrection. It's beautiful. <laughs> Ellie, you felt the same way when you saw this, right? I won't speak for you, but I think you did, right? I was I was blown away by this film. I I, I also rewatched the trilogy um, a few days before to get ready, and I I like uh, I like Reloaded. I think it's really fun. I really mm-hmm. dislike Revolutions, um, and I thought mm. I, I just I thought this was spectacular. Honestly, I think I thought the first. I mean, as you say, like Lana really kind of deconstructs. Uh, the ideas of the sequel and just how to reboot and remake anything. And it's so smart. And I think it's so rare to be able to be self-aware in that way in your script without just being like very plainly really annoying. Um, And I thought Mm. it was just so clever and it was just really woven in and just very smart. And then it just shifts and it's just like this incredible romance, which is just so pure. And it's, it's so Mm. powerful. I was honestly, oh, I was blown away. I've been thinking about it all the time since I went to see it at the cinema. Um, And it's like you were saying, like sitting at home, kind of watching it. um, I get this feeling with some filmmakers that I just catch myself and I'm like, we're so lucky to be alive at the same time as them. And it's like, like Lana mm-hmm. Wachowski's probably not done, and isn't that isn't that just amazing to think about? It's like she's just making movies while while we're watching them, you know. And it's just oh, yeah, I thought mm-hmm. it was incredible. And I, and I think also one of my things that I loved about it was you know over the years a lot of the Matrix you know lore and the pills have been like co opted, oh, and this yeah. was Lana you know really saying f you like I get yeah. to say what this is about. Mm-hmm. This is not about you. It's never been about you. It's about it's about me and people like me and and this is this is my narrative and I own it. And I thought that was so bold of Lana to do that. And it, it's, it works so well. It's that tweet to Elon Musk and uh what's her face Trump in a nutshell, right? It's in a movie. It's a movie length yeah. version yeah. of that extraordinary. <laughs> Maybe that was the moment both where of you. Lana was oh like, I think I am going to do Matrix 4 actually. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Technically, it's not just—it's not just the use of the red cameras, and it's not just that I don't know. Neo never, never puts his hand on a gun. He's just and doesn't actually do a lot of action and doesn't do a lot of smiling. Actually, he's just kind of a bit of a sad sack for the whole film, which is kind of lovely. Right. But it's—but it's also like the projections of the previous films, sort of oh, throughout yeah. most mm-hmm. of the first half of this film. Oh. It's like how how are you doing Goose this bumps. and getting away with it? It's incredible. Incredible. And there's like little beautiful moments like when Bugs uh Bugs has Neo and she uh gets consent to touch his body and she asks how he's doing. Like there's just so much humanity woven through every single moment. The way that um therapy speakers kind of both weaponized against but also used in aid of humanity and advancing romance and advancing peace and I don't know, Mitchell. Mitchell, what's your Matrix take? Um, yeah, I mean, I love it. I I really, really loved it. I I'm not a big blockbustery kind of person. I am very much uh, not a big I bringing back all of these IPs from mm. you know so many years ago and just making a new version of whatever kind of mm. person like that stuff. 
aggravates me to no end. It's very rare that I like any of those kind of movies, um, unless they're Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> um, but with, you know, with Lana doing this and particularly with, I mean, speaking as a non-binary trans person, I, you know, have a very particular relationship with The Matrix. And I think that the way that she um, kind of evolves that is really fascinating. The way that she takes, you know, partly what Slim was talking about, about kind of the response to The Matrix and the way that she kind of attacks that is really there's so much anger in, you know, this new one directed in the right places, but then also that embrace of, you know, love and that embrace of what the original Matrix was all about to begin with, which is the idea of connection and the idea of recognizing, you know, not only somebody else and the connection that you can have with somebody else, but the connection that you can have with yourself. And this idea of really just saying like, fuck you to anybody who wants to do anything against that. Like, I feel like the matrix, the first matrix was really about kind of actualizing yourself as a trans person. And then this new one resurrections is very much about the fact that even after you've recognized yourself in that way, the battle's like not over, mm -hmm. unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, you're still fighting that battle every single day. And there are so many of these different elements who are going to try and take that from you or try to weaponize that against you and try to, you know, push you back down. But you still just keep fighting that battle because, you know, that's, that's all you can do. And you can find people that are going to support you in that battle. And I'm getting a little bit choked up. Um, it's just really, you know, I think it's really powerful and you can really feel her in that and watching it, you know, as a trans person myself, it really, it really meant a lot to me to see that on screen again and see the way that she's kind of taken the same idea of the matrix and made something completely new with it while still, you know, it feeling like an evolution mm -hmm. from what was there before. It doesn't take anything away from what was there before. So you can still have that original one be exactly what it is and then have this new one be exactly what it is. And it can be just as emotional and powerful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Bringing this, bringing this whole episode full circle. There's a, there's such a strong link between the end of Evangelion and the end of Matrix in terms of these filmmakers who have had such intensely personal experiences, you know, with with living and the and the almost impossible task of living, especially these last couple of years, who have both ended these series optimistically, even even while the Matrix especially has this suicidal ideation knitted all the way through it. I mean, when those bodies, when those bots start leaping from buildings, it's just horrifying. And yet it finishes so, so hopeful and so optimistic. And, and also is sort of saying like, there's that moment where, where they say, you ruined everything. We had grace, we had style, we had conversation, not this do, 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 like indicating that we're just all on our phones, but there's this sort of gorgeous sense at the end that it is possible to live with the machines that we have become enslaved to, if we remember our humanity, and is this the part where we all cry and <laughs> across you know ten thousand miles? That scene where they jump off the roof—that was my Spider-Man No Way Home moment. Oh. That was like that was like one of the moments of the year, hundred percent. Yeah, people talk about like the action in Resurrections not being good or whatever, and sure, maybe it's not you know as meticulously choreographed as the first one because she didn't want it to be, but like. 
And it's, I mean, it's barely even an action movie. Like it's so much more just a drama, but like that sequence, that is more effective than I think any action scene in any of the Marvel mm-hmm. movies that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like that scene is, mm-hmm. I was watching that and my jaw was completely dropped. I was like, Same. I don't even know what's happening <laughs> yeah. right now. I couldn't believe it. I kept shaking my head. I was like, this isn't, <laughs> how are we here? Yes. Yeah, like, this is insane. I was like, am I dreaming this? Is this an actual Matrix movie that I'm watching in 2021 where this scene is happening? And like, we're just going to leave the cinema and just like not talk about it again? Inside. Mm, no, no, that's what the letterbox shows. That's what the hotline's for. You can call us and talk about that scene anytime. Oh, Thank God. Thanks so much for listening to the Letterbox Show, and thanks to all our guests. An absolute bumper crop: Matt Singer, Juan Bakin. Bindang Lestada, Ella Kemp and Mitchell Beaupre and thanks to the whole Letterboxd crew behind the scenes who spend Christmas putting the year in review together every year while the rest of you scarf turkey and watch more movies. Thanks to our podcast crew Monica for the theme music Vampiros Dansotech Jack for the facts, our booker Linda Moulton for looking after our guests and Sophie Shin for the episode transcript and to you for listening along this season. You can follow Slim, that's me, Gemma, and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. And I'd also like to thank you, Slim, for inventing the Letterboxd hotline. <laughs> that was uh, an exciting piece of thank tech you. that I hope we get to deploy on some other shows in the future. We'll see. Stay tuned. <laughs> Speaking of which, this is also the end of our current season. We're taking a little break and we'll be back after the Sundance Film Festival with renewed vigour. If you miss us over the next few weeks, why not go back and listen to some episodes you may have skipped over? Or, if you're completely up to date on the Letterboxd show, feel free to listen to Slim's other (gasps) show, 70mm Pod, which recently celebrated 100 years. It's been 100, no, sorry, 100 (laughs) episodes. 100 episodes. Episodes. That's just greedy. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, you know, if I could be frank, there would be no 70 millimeter pod without Letterboxd. That's the whole oh. reason we kicked off the show. So it's uh, simpatico. It was one long audition to join the Letterboxd crew. It took 100 um, episodes. But. You, it took 100 episodes, but you're part of the family now, Slim. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. The Letterboxd show, speaking of families, is a tape deck production. And, um, and that's it. That's what the Letterbox Show does. Weaponizes every idea, every dream, everything that's important to us. <laughs> I'm sure you can understand why our beloved parent company, Warner Brothers, has decided to make a sequel to the trilogy. What? They informed me they're going to do it with or without us. I thought they couldn't do that. (sighs) Oh, they can. And they made it clear they'll kill our contract if we don't cooperate. Really? I know you said the story was over for you, but... That's the thing about stories. They never really end, do they? We're still telling the same stories we've always told, just with different names, different faces. I have to say, I'm kind of excited. After all these years, to be going back to where it all started. Back to the Matrix. 
This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Oh.